Hello, this is Kat, and this is the Feminine Chaos Podcast. You're about to hear my conversation with Catherine D., better known as Default Friend. Catherine is a writer and the co-host of the After the Orgy Podcast, and we had a really interesting conversation about internet culture, internet subcultures, and the power of extremely online fandoms to shape the art and the media that we all consume. A longer version of this conversation is available for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash feminineChaos, where a monthly donation of $5 gets you exclusive Feminine Chaos content, early access to our public episodes, and an entire backlog of conversations on a variety of topics. I hope you'll consider supporting us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm not sure when I became aware of you uh, as a sort of an online commentator, but now you seem to be everywhere. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could sort of sketch your path um, to, to becoming a, a cultural and social critic from wherever you started to, to how you ended up where you are right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been kind of a winding path. Um, well, so I've always I've always been a, a writer. Um, I was sort of like gun shy about it, um, about putting too much work out there under my name. Um, so my writing life had always been separate from my Twitter life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I started getting a following on Twitter because I was like just meeting people in the Bay Area sort of as like, I don't want to say it was a bit, but it was it was a, it was a project. Um, my my uh Twitter uh, username is default friend. And that was like a project I was doing um, partially because everyone was sort of like, you know, it's really hard to make friends in California. The Bay area is like not only boring, but like nobody ever wants to hang out. And it felt like that just like felt like an excuse. So I wanted to, I kind of like form like formally, you know, tried to investigate whether or not that was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then COVID happened um, and, you know, from there I started, uh, you know, I started writing on Substack and then it, it just kind of like exploded from there. Um, my Substack, well, the, the post that really like got people reading it was I like had some sort of like, I don't know, it was like sort of manic. I was like, oh my God, like there's this, like, there's a reaction that's been, you know, simmering for a long time, um, against like sex positive sex positivity. Um, and I was sort of thinking of it like when your house is infested with roaches mm-hmm. and like now we're finally able, like it's been going on for a very long time, but now like, you know, we're at the point where we can see the roaches. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I mean, it was just like this really like crazy blog post, but um, it ended up like referenced in the New York times, which I realized like months later. And I was like, why is everyone like, you know, how did everyone find this post? And it was, it was because you know, it got it got linked in a, a major publication, um, you know, for, by someone else who's you know making a similar point, um, and that kind of like opened up the floodgates for me to to you know write more robustly and you know not only for my own blog. Oh, that's amazing! Um, I'm just thinking about the I'm a little obsessed now with this cockroach metaphor, and we're we're going to talk about sex positivity and the backlash to it later on. Um, 
in a in a conversation that I'm holding back for subscribers because I think it's going to be you know a little spicier and a little more exciting. I wanted to start by talking about your work in the space of uh, like fandom culture, media culture. And um, you and I share a theory about the influence of Tumblr over what is happening in sort of like the discourse today. I was on Tumblr starting around 2010 because I was writing young adult fiction and it was a place where a lot of young adult readers and authors were congregating. Um, I think sort of led by John Green, who was like a big influencer. Um, you know, he had like a presence across multiple platforms, but Tumblr was really sort of where it was at. And so people gravitated toward it. And at the time, I remember noticing that this dynamic was emerging where people were starting to be sort of aggressively wounded by content by like books or art or music or whatever. And, you know, whatever they were consuming, um, they were forming this unusual relationship with it. And that's something that's now bled out, you know, pretty much across the board into the broader culture, into the way that, you know, mainstream journalists write about art. And it's something that I think a lot of commentators have blamed universities for being incubators of, but you've argued very persuasively that it started on Tumblr. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it started on Tumblr. I mean, I'd actually say it didn't start on Tumblr, but Tumblr was like the, it was how it exploded. Um, you know, because Tumblr was, it was like the the top website or, you know, one of the top websites for adolescents and, and young adults. So like, you know, between the ages of like 13 and like 24 uh, for its reign, right. It was like the number one place. Um and, you know, it was sort of, it was sort of like a hunch that Tumblr was, was like the, you know, the, the, like the containment zone that had like broken open. And then I started interviewing people and I've interviewed like hundreds of people and every single person who I've spoken to, or like almost every single person who I've spoken to, um, has been like, look, like, sure, you know, I could have taken a class in call, you know, if they attended college. Um, like, you know, in queer theory, but like, I was really seeing this stuff, like on the like super hulock blog that I followed. And I wasn't even necessarily interested, but you see it so often that you just kind of like absorb it by osmosis. Um, one story that like really sticks out in my mind, and I've, I've heard like several iterations of this, but um, the way this one person like expressed it to me, like really stood out in my mind was, um, you know, she she was on Tumblr, not even in these sort of more activist minded or fan, you know, fandom oriented spaces. Um, but she kept seeing uh, like there was a little bit of like cross pollination and she kept seeing people uh, be very offended by gendered language. And she would just read it all the time. And it wasn't even like she was seeking it out. It was just like something that would sort of organically find its way to her her feed. And then she noticed, like when she was hanging out with her family, that she would police herself and start self-monitoring because she was so used to seeing it online. And she had a moment of clarity one day. She was like, I'm not saying like, hey, guys, to my own family because I'm worried about offending them. But I don't even know how I, like this got into my, you know, my way of thinking. And it was only like she put, you know, she put the pieces together because she was seeing it so often. But I feel like this must have happened to 
you know, a lot of people, you just, you're, it's like when you're learning a language, it just, it, it finds its way into your brain. So of all of the communities that could have, you know, had this sort of discursive power in, in influencing, not just what we're talking about, but literally how we talk about it. You know, there's all of these new rules surrounding what language is considered okay and what's offensive. And, you know, it's, it's very dominant now. You know, you're sort of expected to know these rules. Why Tumblr? Why do you think that it had this power, you know, over, over the broader culture and over the way that people started expressing themselves? Well, first, I think it's just, you know, there's like, there's an amount of luck um, because it was so popular and because it trended, um, it just it it just touched so many people. Um, and there was other, you know, there's reasons why it became popular. Uh, you know, it was the place for fans. It was very much the place for fashion, um, music to some extent. Uh, it it didn't only replace um, like Live Journal and Zanga, uh, which were very popular at the time, um, but it kind of replaced. Um, MySpace, in a sense, um, just in terms of like the character of communities that were there. Um, so it was, you know, it was doing a lot of work. And it was also like a, t- a period of time where like confessional writing was very on trend and very popular and very encouraged. And it was a very confessional platform. But then, you know, on the other side, like the, you know, getting more into the weeds, um, the actual like UI uh I think contributed to it a lot. Like, first of all, you know, you're not just firing off like um, 180 or 240 character posts. Like you really get the opportunity to have like long discussions with people. And that's not, or that, you know, definitely wasn't rare then. Um, And being, being sucked in to, you know, on that level, like really gets you engaged. And then the other thing is like, Tumblr was so porous. There was like really no boundaries. Um, And by that, I mean, like in the past, like on LiveJournal, for example, if you want to be part of like a fan community, if you want to be part of any community at all, there's like a certain level of like seeking it out you need to do. You need to like pass through like some sort of like gateway. Um, Like, you, you know, blogs are protected and you need to know the right keywords. But Tumblr everything was like, there was no way to like really curate what you were seeing. Like things just kind of fell into, you know, your view. Um, and that's, you know, that's the explanation that people, it's, it's crazy. Like people have put a lot of effort into studying this. Like that's how super hulak uh, became a thing. And uh, for people who may not be familiar with that. I was gonna say, uh, you're going to have to define super yeah. hulak. <laughs> um, this was, this was something Tumblr became like very iconic for it was the merging of the supernatural fandom and that was a television these are all television shows uh the Doctor Who fandom and the Sherlock Holmes fandom and uh it was you know it was like one like sort of like monster of <laughs> of a fandom and it just it happened because like there like you it's very difficult to sort of say like I only want to see uh, you know, supernatural content. It, eventually, like these things would just sort of <clears throat> melt together. Um, and you know, to to segue a little bit, I, I think this is why um, content warnings or trigger warnings, uh, which is when you know, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. You're warning people what kind of content is going to be in the post. Um, 
were so popular in Tumblr, you know, not not necessarily only because people were so sensitive, but because, <clears throat> you know, you can put something under a cut all you want, but you there's, there was like not a good way to, to hide types of content. So by throwing up like a big, bold content warning, when people were scrolling their feed, at least they knew like, all right, maybe they hid, a, you know, a, a, a GIF under the, the cut, but I, I'm not going to explore further uh, because there, there would be no other way to put it out of your view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that I remember very well from my time on that platform um, and, you know, just sort of like watching conversations take place there was how, you know, claiming to be traumatized and and demanding content warnings became a way to wield a lot of social power on the site. And there was this period where, you know, you would see people making all kinds of demands for like, like you posted a picture of holes and I found that triggering. Like I have a hole phobia. Um, And this stuck out in my mind because it's something that ended up ultimately maybe five or 10 years down the line, it made itself, uh, it made its way rather into an episode or an entire season of American Horror Story. And it was such an interesting kind of example of how information or like lenses for engaging with the world would flow off of Tumblr and into the culture and then be reproduced in the same media and in the same like art and, and television that was initially being discussed on Tumblr. So it was this cyclical thing. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so many things. I mean, I have so, uh, so many responses to that. Um, I guess like on the top level. So like Ryan Murphy, who also did Glee, had a very um, close relationship with Tumblr. Um, there, I, I'm pretty sure, um, and this is something that I've been meaning to do more research into, like Tumblr like changed the course of like a whole season of Glee. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, this wink that like, I know that my, you know, my fans are congregating here and clustering on this site. Um, and, you know, the, the second, you know, the second part of that is uh, it was, it was known that Tumblr is where, uh, you know, fans congregated, not just for Glee and American Horror Story, but also, you know, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, had a, like a very close relationship with Tumblr. Um you know, the, the properties we've already talked about a little bit. Um, I mean, there's just, there was just so, so many Harry Potter, um, and, uh, researchers from other, um, companies like, uh, I, I think, I mean, Microsoft for sure. Uh, but also like big media companies, um, would go around and like give talks about how to tap into the fan base on Tumblr and how to reach them and how to communicate with them. So it was, you know, it was a very conscious thing. And then sort of another thing was going on. So like, not only do we have big tech companies and big media companies know that this is going on. And then there's another level, which this is the craziest part. And this is a part I've talked most about in my work because it's just like insane to me that this was memory hold because it was documented at the time by like trustworthy uh, media sources um like freelance journalists on um who worked for or who were writing for rather uh publications like buzzfeed um 
the all the sort of like Gawker properties um, in particular, uh, would use Tumblr and Reddit as sources for stories. And so they would see these sort of like outlandish people, you know, as these websites are so well known for <clears throat> and write, you know, stories to, you know, just to generate clickbait. Because um, if I recall correctly, like having written for a couple of, you know, websites like this myself, like at this time, if you got like a certain number of comments, I believe, or like clicks, like you would get a little bit more money. Um, they would have like a very low base rate. <clears throat> but anyway, so like they would amplify like weird things and make it seem like it was bigger than it was. Um, and so like one really interesting example of this that PBS actually did a like a short segment on um, was the Aurora, Colorado mass shooting. Um, <clears throat> there was like five or six people on Tumblr who very well may have been trolling who were pretending to be fans of uh, James Holmes, who is a shooter. <clears throat> and um, they, I think they sort of like ironically self-identified as homies. Well, BuzzFeed wrote about that and they made it seem like it was a big community. And then <clears throat> CNN saw the BuzzFeed story and then wrote about it. And what had been like a handful of posts exploded into a th like thousands of posts. And the thing is, hybristophiles, which are people who are attracted to serial killers and shooters and, you know, these, these sort of criminals, is, you know, it's a real phenomenon. And it was signaling to them, like, oh, this is a new thing. This is where people are hanging out. So it, it tapped into something real, but it also, like, created, in a sense, a community that would not have existed. And you see this happening like a lot with different things that are like very outlandish. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, who's to, you know, who's to say like, if, you know, if it is just like waking something up in people or if they were just, they, they weren't brave enough or, you know, what exactly the mechanics there are, but it's, it's super interesting that like, you know, PBS noticed this, right. And somehow like now it's like a, a mystery that this ever happened. That's fascinating. I mean, it's, this is something that um, Phoebe, my co-host, who's not with us right now, um, <laughs> that makes it sound like she's temporarily dead. <laughs> we just had a baby. Um, <laughs> but we talk about this a lot um, because we were both employed, um, you know, circa 2010 through 2015 um, at sites where you know, you did have like a post quota, you know, you had to write a certain amount of stuff each day. And, and the easiest thing to do was to go on social media and find like a story, you know, find something that people seemed to be talking about, find what was popular. And I remember I was reporting for MTV News at the time. And, you know, I would wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and I would like go to Reddit and I would go to something called Crowd Tangle that I don't think exists anymore. Um, and, you know, you would spend this time just looking to see like, well, what's what's sort of popping on the internet today. And sometimes, you know, you would be able to find like things that were already viral and, you know, just sort of unearth them from whatever like forum community they were circulating on and then, you know, bring it over to a mainstream news site. And in that sense, you know, it wasn't so much that you were like memeing something harmful into existence or, or you know, creating a glow around something that people could then, you know, gather to the way the, the homies thing happened. But I do remember, I think it was maybe in 2011, 
they released a teaser trailer for the new Star Wars movie, and it was just an image of um, oh god, I don't remember his name, John something the uh, the the black actor who played a stormtrooper who ultimately defects. And it was a, an image of him in the desert wearing his stormtrooper gear, but with his helmet off. And it was like, this was a big deal, you know, a black stormtrooper. And it was very striking. But what ended up happening was that people working at mainstream news sites, I, you know, were in a similarly desperate position, like, I just need to write about this, I need to find a way to write about this, I have a post quota, like, I don't have a whole lot of time, went and found three Twitter accounts with like 15 followers a piece who were probably trolling, who were complaining, you know, in racist and incendiary terms about there being this black stormtrooper. And they went back and wrote like people on Twitter or people online are, you know, are being racist about the new Star Wars teaser. And that basically got the ball rolling in such a way that not only did it create way more discussion, like exponentially more than was actually happening surrounding this before, um, you know, a reporter turned it into a story, but it ended up influencing the direction of that franchise in and of itself. And now it's this huge contentious point that people are probably going to be debating for, you know, and arguing about for like the next 15 years, you know, why did the last Jedi suck so much? It's because of this. (laughs) So yeah, it's, there is that interesting feedback loop that happens. The other thing is when you're writing for these websites and you do have a post quota, like you're pretty, like your bandwidth is pretty low, um, but to understand like what is trolling and what isn't, or like what, you know, what the language of, you know, certain inter- internet communities is, you really need to be immersed in it in like a way that is totally unsustainable. It's especially unsustainable if you're, you know, you're a human content mill. Um, and I feel like this other thing happens where like you, you, you know, by no fault of your own, you're like misrepresenting things because um, it's just like to really understand uh, some of these posts, you need to be like in the thick of it, kind of studying it, sitting with it for a little bit. And then you realize like, oh, like, um, you know, when, you know, someone in such a in such and such a community uh, says something very hostile or uh, even very loving, like it actually means X, even though like normal human mode, it would, <laughs> it would mean Y. Like it's, it's like, in a sense, it's like not even English, which I feel like, comp- you know, complicates the the game of telephone even more. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's definitely there's also that um, that effect of like you know you have sort of older or middle middle aged adults or like not quite so young adults observing what's basically a bunch of teenagers speaking sort of like a niche dialect and not realizing that you know that that everything they're seeing has different multiple layers of meaning that they just don't have access to because they don't speak that version of English. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, and it's to their, you know, to their credit, it's like, it's difficult to learn. Like there's, I think I'm online like all the time and there's, I make like real rookie mistakes like <laughs> daily. It's, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really hard, especially cause it, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's a niche dialect. Like it looks like English. You're, you know, you can be forgiven for assuming it is, but like it kind of, it's, it can it be so different in some communities. It, it may as well not be. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does remind me, and I, I don't know how old you are, um, but I was a teenager before the internet really existed. And so a lot of what I, when I see people sort of talking about this stuff and, and sort of clutching their pearls over it, it reminds me of conversations that I would have with my friends as a teenager, where the, the whole point was basically to troll adults, you know, and, but it was happening in like, a much more limited way where you might be having a conversation like in the back of the car while someone's parents was, were driving you and and you knew that you were being listened to. And so you would express yourself in certain ways that like you knew would freak the parents out. Um, but it was it was incredibly limited. It was like a one on one thing. And now it's happening in public and in a way that is, is being picked up on and amplified to broader audiences so that it ends up. Um, not just being misunderstood, but gaining this power over the way that everybody talks about everything. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I like, I don't think it helps either that I, I think like the internet encourages a sort of like suspended adolescence. So you have that kind of mindset of like, you're, you know, you're in the back of the car kind of playing tricks on, you know, your friend's mom. Uh, but you're like, you know, like a lot of people engaging in this are like in their 30s and they've been, you know, di- they're digital natives. They've been online since they were 10 years old or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason, they never grew out of that mindset. I mean, one thing that's like always very striking to me is, especially on like far right corners of Twitter, you have all these guys or like people who are like male presenting, um, you know, because I don't really know their identities and neither does anyone else, right, um, who claim to have family and children but they speak in this very sort of like adolescent language. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it's, I, I don't wonder whether or not these people really have families and lives and jobs um, because they're like on far right Twitter. But I like wonder because like really the mechanics of uh, their public facing communication, um, you know, I'm not going to speak to how they behave in DMs and Discord servers or whatever, I have no idea. But their public facing communication is really that of someone who is like forever trapped in like the realm of, you know, adolescence. And it's, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. Well, something about to return to the, the Tumblr dynamic specifically, um, I don't know if, if this was only happening or if I was only seeing this because I happened to be interacting with a lot of like young adult authors and young adult readers who were themselves, you know, either teenagers or sort of like on the cusp of adulthood. But there was this real sense within the YA community that teenage girls were a sort of a very precious, very fragile moral authority and that they needed to be protected, but also kind of elevated. Um, you know, they were granted this very prominent position in in intellectual life, at least on that site, but also like immunity from the responsibility to defend their ideas or, or you know, to, to make persuasive arguments that usually goes with that because you were supposed to listen to them and take them very seriously, but you were not supposed to criticize or question them because, you know, they were fragile and they had no power. So, you know, to to disagree um, or, you know, to criticize a teenage girl's ideas was, was punching down. And that ended up manifesting in a lot of interesting ways. You, know, you would see people talking about how, like, you know, teenage girls were always being basically like shat upon. Um, but, you know, but they were so they were so noble and they were so good and they had like so much 
influence. I mean, it's at the same time you have like rookie mag, right? Like there's, Mm -hmm. this is happening all over the place. This is actually even in a sense happening in Silicon Valley. It's like the, you know, it's teenagers, right? Like there's a long history of like them being a valuable audience and a group of people that we should listen to. And we're almost sort of like, you know, kowtowing to, but it, it gets moralized, I think. Um, so like in Silicon Valley, you have like, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a thing that's always existed, but it becomes, it's sort it becomes especially prominent in the 2010s, the like 19 year old dropout founder, who's actually a genius. And like, you know, we, we need to elevate him. And we have like New York times articles being written about these people. Elizabeth Holmes is of course, uh, you know, if, for those of us who remember like the original articles <laughs> being written about her, you know, before she girl bossed too close to the sun as it, <laughs> as it were. Um, but, uh, that, you know, but then in, uh, in the East Coast media class, there's like Tavi Gevinson, who's been like deified since she was 11. I mean, it's like this very weird thing. And I haven't like totally cracked that nut, but it, I kind of see like reverberations of it to this day. And I, I find it like kind of an, kind of annoying. I, th- I think I even found it annoying, you know, when I was like a 15 or like 16 year old girl who was like seeing it. Cause it's like, I don't know. I like had some sense of some self-awareness that like I myself didn't know shit, but like, you know, Tavi Gevinson doesn't necessarily know anything either. I don't know. It felt, and it felt encouraged by adults in like kind of a predatory way too. Like, I don't know what Jane Pratt was doing, but like didn't seem, didn't seem good. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, to, to describe them as deified is, is such a good term. I was, you know, thinking that it was almost like this fetishization, but it wasn't sexual. And I, I do remember, you know, Tavi Gevinson is a, a great example because, you know, she was granted this incredible status, you know, not just within like the media class, but within the fashion community. And she was you know, but but you couldn't criticize her because she was a child. So like she showed up to Fashion Week wearing a hat that um, that obstructed the view of everybody sitting behind her. But the one person who dared to post something even like mildly critical about it, I remember, was excoriated. You know, because like how dare you? She's a, she's a child. Like you can't criticize this child. Um, I think I think one of the ways that this manifested. Talk about this one blog specifically. Um, because it seems like a single point of origin for a lot of what we're now seeing in fandom, media, and art, uh, was the Tumblr blog called Your Fave is Problematic. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah, of course. So this blog was not just... It didn't just introduce this new dimension to fandom where there was this perception that you sort of like... That you had some kind of ownership over the private lives of, of creators, you know, and that you, you should be holding them accountable for not being morally correct in, or politically correct um, in, you know, in the ways that this very, very young class of people had decided were, were necessary. But I also see precursors there to the Me Too movement and specifically the way that it developed this arm of like, we're going to try this person in the court of public opinion. And as soon as the allegation is made, you know, the allegation is bad enough. It doesn't even really matter if it turns out that they did the thing or not, because everyone's talking about it. So what's interesting about um, your fave is problematic that, and I don't know if this is true, I need to verify it, but um, so in these interviews I do with uh, Tumblr, like former Tumblr users, 
someone told me that it started off actually as a satire to sort of satirize the like kangaroo courts of, of Tumblr, um, which I thought was really interesting. And then it just, it became real. Um, but there were like other similar uh, blogs sort of like poking fun at this dynamic. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a weird thing. I mean, the thing is like, you see this dynamic a lot in like very small subcultures where like, they're, they're kind of like existing outside, like it's, you know, like these misfit subcultures that like exist outside of like mainstream life in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like very, it's like, it's very prevalent in like the neo-pagan community um, where they're, it's, it's, it's so strange. There, there's like a hierarchy because there kind of has to be because it like takes over your whole life, but I wouldn't call it a cult either. It's like some weird other thing. And if you kind of like disobey the like arcane rules of like whatever corner of this community you're in, you get kicked out. Like to give one really weird example. Um, and I, you know, I, I think this is really mirrored on Tumblr. Um, you know, I was part of a, a neo-pagan community as a very young adult. And there is this rule that like certain people were, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but, you know, please keep in mind, I was, you know, in my early twenties, I was, I was dumb. Uh, <clears throat> but there was like this certain rule that like uh, particular people decided by like one sort of like queen bee of the, the click, right. Were I, they were like fairies. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you weren't like, uh, if you weren't a fairy, then you couldn't engage with like certain kinds of like media, like within the context of this like neo-pagan community. And then like people who broke, like then there's a whole bunch of rules surrounding this and people who broke those rules were outed. But I think it's like a weird way to like keep order in something that's kind of like existing outside the like, you know, matrix of everyone else. Like, it, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but you, you see it on Tumblr because it's like a whole other, it's like an alternative reality, right? So new rules kind of emerge and they don't really map onto the social etiquette of actual life, but you see it, you know, all over fandom too. Mm-hmm. So to, to draw what may be a completely misguided connection, um, the, what you're describing where, you know, this, this set of rules that seems kind of wacky and bizarre and disconnected from like, you know, actual normal human dynamics, um, you know, comes, comes into being um, in, you know, online communities. It reminds me a little bit of how um, there's all of this discussion now surrounding like, what are the rules of contemporary dating and contemporary relationships that has a lot to do with the fact that like, we dispensed with a lot of the etiquette, a lot of like the kind of courtship culture that used to be a thing, even like, I mean, going back, like probably pre-sexual revolution, um, you know, when it was somewhat more dangerous to actually have, you know, sex outside the bounds of, of marriage, um, you know, let alone of like a committed relationship. So, you know, we, we did away with the, the structure, um, you know, the rules and, and freed people to kind of pursue their pleasure and pursue their desires, but at a cost of making it feel like this sort of unhinged wild west where anything could happen and that you end up with people trying to kind of implement some kind of new structure in response to that because people actually do crave like a certain amount of not restriction but but like a framework to operate in like they want to know what they can and can't do yeah totally i mean like 
a lot of the the dating problems we have now just because like there is no central like agreed upon morality for better or worse so all these other like weird things start to emerge because it's like this like piecemeal attempt at like an etiquette or, or structure so we have some guidance um but i mean like you know i think like part of the reason a lot of like underground or like counterculture or like previously taboo communities like worked so well is because they were like you know reacting against an agreed upon you know moral framework um and so like you know to have a to have like a functioning like underground or like taboo sexuality you also need the like you know maybe more restrictive less less fun you know in scare quotes of course sexual morality that's in the light that everyone can see and kind of is aware of and was like conditioned into as they were growing up um and now it's just kind of like there's no boundaries at all so i mean I, you know i think this is kind of like the 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 problem with modern life whether you're talking about tumblr or talking about dating apps there's no boundaries there's no rules um and without those boundaries and every you know with everything being so porous it's kind of hard to know which end is up mm-hmm. so we're going to segue very shortly uh into talking about contemporary like sexual norms and sexual morality and the rise of OnlyFans and so on and so forth um, for subscribers. So if you're listening to this episode in the public forum, you know, if you want the juicy stuff, you'll have to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash feminine chaos. But before we segue, I want to just ask one more question about Tumblr and fandom and media culture, because you're engaged now in a sort of a a broader project exploring the connections between these different internet subcultures and the way we live now, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that's a good way of putting it. Okay, so what I want to know is we're about 10 years into the emergence of, of Tumblr and Tumblr dynamics as the main influencer, the main driver of, of you know, the, the rules for how we talk about stuff now. But we're 10 years into it, and I think that people are starting to show signs of fatigue and maybe are ready to start moving in a different direction. Um, do you have any inkling of, you know, which communities or which internet subcultures might end up driving the next wave of cultural change? People might not like this answer, but I really think that we like best not uh, underestimate right wing and post left Twitter. Um, and it seems like, oh, you know, like cat, like you're so Twitter brained, like you're in an echo chamber. But, you know, when my dad, right, who's some dude in his 50s is, you know, aware of the, you know, the word black pill and not because I said it, you know, while visiting my parents, <laughs> then, you know, like, okay, like, and he's not like a right wing guy or anything. He's not watching Tucker Carlson. You know, he's just some like liberal Jewish dude out in the world and he knows what a chat is. You kind of like, all right, there's something's going on here. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to be like, the dominant culture necessarily, but I think that the influence that that kind of corner of the internet has is again, like to go back to the, the roaches comment, like it's been going on for a while. Um, and it's, you know, it's been in the house and now we're seeing the, you know, we see like one roach here, one roach there in our, our kitchen. And we know it's like, <laughs> we the house is about to be like we need to get an exterminator in and not to say and just to 
pref- you know, quick disclaimer at this analogy, I'm not making a moral judgment. I just think it's like a great way of describing like things happening and we don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, don't actually think that anyone is, is you know, bad or good or whatever. It's just so what a- you're saying is both sex positive feminists and alt-right forum types are cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, do you want to tell folks where they can find you online, where you're writing for, where you're tweeting and Instagramming and so on? Sure. Um, you could follow me on Twitter at default underscore friend. And um, I... I, you know, do a lot of self-marketing. So you'll you'll find all of my writing there uh, infinitely retweeted. Wonderful. All right. Uh, this has been Feminine Chaos. Thanks so much. <laughs>